Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Great to see you all here. I'm just going to take a second to um, announce our CME code for today for the folks who are off-site. So the code today is 827K. One more time, 827K. All right, now that you've had a chance to enter that, uh, I am happy to welcome um, Dr. Lisa Adams today uh, to introduce today's speaker. She's the Associate Dean for Global Health and the Director of the Center for Health Equity at Geisel. She's an Associate Professor in the Section of Infectious Disease and International Health, and um, she is a classmate of today's speaker. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Kelly, and good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, as mentioned, my medical school classmate, Dr. Peter Kilmarks. Peter's currently the Deputy Director at the John E. Fogarty International Center of the National Institutes of Health, and the Fogarty Center is the leading center for global health research and capacity building. Peter's training, though, started right here at Dartmouth as he graduated from Dartmouth College and then from Dartmouth-Brown Combined Program in Medicine. He completed both his internal medicine residency and infectious disease fellowships at Johns Hopkins. But Peter began his international career before entering medical school when he served as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Democratic Republic of Congo, then Zaire. As the first and only Westerner in a small village in the remote interior of the country, he helped develop fisheries that are still productive today. You actually can go on Google Earth and look and see those fisheries uh, are still active now. Peter has had a long and distinguished career in the, at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's held a variety of leadership positions, including Chief of the Epidemiology Branch and the Division of HIV-AIDS Prevention, and as the CDC Country Director in Zimbabwe. He also served as the Director of the CDC Partnership with Botswana to combat HIV-AIDS, TB, and related co conditions, as well as the Chief of the CDC's Sexual Transmission Research Section in Thailand. He has been a principal or senior investigator on clinical trials and other STD research in the United States, Thailand, Botswana, and Zimbabwe. As an assistant surgeon general and rear admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service, Peter led the CDC Ebola response team in Sierra Leone in 2014 and was the deputy team leader in Guinea in 2015. Previously, he had leadership roles in the CDC response to Ebola outbreaks in the DRC back in 1995 and in 2007. As such, she has a unique perspective on the Ebola control efforts and our global response. Peter has devoted his professional life to promoting global health equity, working with and for underserved populations around the world. For this work, he has received many awards and honors, but I'll just highlight one. He was a 2010 recipient of the Martin Luther King Jr. Social Justice Lifetime Achievement Award from Dartmouth College. And what a fitting recognition of Peter's efforts to promote global partnership, capacity building, and research collaboration to address the most critical infectious disease threats facing the globe today. We're delighted Peter's here to share his experience and expertise. Let's welcome Dr. Peter Kilmarks. Yes, okay, good, thank you, good morning. Thanks, Lisa, for the very nice um, invitation 
to be here and very nice introduction. I'm really delighted to be back here in Hanover at Dartmouth. Let me, uh, I've got some nice pictures, so I'm going to turn down the lights a bit. Let me just go there. <laughs> Good. Uh, so th uh, that's a picture of me. That was my, my senior uh, yearbook picture back 35 years ago when I graduated from, uh, from Dartmouth. And I'm going to talk about responding and research capacity for Ebola, for HIV, and other infectious diseases and, and tie together some themes about the public health response and about also the, the research needs. So I will talk about responding to Ebola and responding to HIV and building our research capacity, our global biomedical research capacity, and we'll definitely, definitely uh, leave some time for questions and answers and, and look forward to interacting and, and talking with you all. L let me start with Ebola in West Africa, the great big outbreak in 2014 to 2016. This was the largest ever, the first with wide, widespread transmission in, in multiple countries and the first with urban, um, extensive urban transmission. The first cases were in Guinea in 2013, December 2013, in the, uh, in the forested region, and uh, then spread to the neighboring areas of Liberia and Sierra Leone, with especially intense transmission in the urban areas. Do I have one more? Yes, the total cases, uh, over 28,000 and over 11,000 deaths. So as uh, Lisa mentioned, I was, I was in the, uh, in, I don't know if you can, how well you can see this. Ew, not well at all. That's too bad. There's a green curve here um, for Sierra Leone, and that very steep part of the curve is when I was the, the, uh, to the team leader there in Sierra Leone, the CDC team leader. The cases were doubling, uh, the, the incidence was doubling about once a month. And then later, as the curve was starting to flatten, I was the deputy team leader in, uh, in Guinea for that period. This is in Port Loco in Sierra Leone in early October in 2014. And I'm there. It's a quarantined village in a quarantined household. This is the headman of the village. And there had been an Ebola case in his house. So his house was quarantined. There had been so many cases in the village. Uh, in the entire village was quarantined. And we're all, we're all looking pretty grim there. There's no uh, phlebotomy available. Um, there's, no, there's certainly no field diagnostics. The diagnostics are, are away in the capital in Freetown. Um, there's, there's, they can't even do phlebotomy in the field. There's no um, treatment available, no specific treatment available. ZMAP hadn't been proven effective. There's no vaccine available. The vaccine hadn't been proven effective. So just really tough sledding without uh, really modern tools, specific tools. To, uh, to fight the epidemic, and so we're, we're left with uh, the basic public health response, which is, uh, which is what we did. The, the CDC response in Sierra Leone, the first staff were deployed in June of 2014. The level three travel warning was in July of 2014. The, uh, while I was there in September and October, we really ramped up operations. We doubled our staff, uh, more than doubled from about 30 to more than 60, and it was, it's very nice to be able to just get on the phone and say, I need someone to do this and someone to do that, and, uh, and they show up. That's, that's fairly unique in, uh, in government service that you get that kind of a response. And the, we, we started with the typical teams, um, epidemiology and surveillance, infection control, laboratory health communications, 
and, and sort of the typical CDC uh, uh, activities in, a, in, a, uh, in an Ebola outbreak, but recognized and uh, needed to start new teams to have uh, CDC people involved, not with the direct hands-on um, case management in the treatment units, not out there with shovels with dead body management, but just the kind of public health uh, management of a, uh, of a public health response, of, of having uh, quality assurance, coverage, um, those kinds of things. Also informatics and also developing um, on the fly a public health laboratory system. It, usually in an Ebola outbreak there's one or two laboratories and every, all the cases are fairly centralized and this was setting up a whole national program in, uh, it, quite quickly. So there were over 1,400 CDC staff that were deployed uh, that, that went over to, uh, to West Africa as, as part of this response. And I'd, I'd say from my own perspective, let me go to the next, next picture, uh, this is the, the first uh, week after I came in uh, there with Dr. Carbo, the chief medical officer for the Ministry of Health and Sanitation. This was the most rewarding thing I've done in my professional career, uh, responding to this kind of an outbreak at that point when it was really uh, out of control. There was uh, predictions that there would be over a million cases. I'd stay up until about one in the morning every night and, uh, in, every night and realize I need to get some sleep, um, take a Lunesta, and uh, sleep for four hours, wake up at 5 a.m., energized and ready to go. And every, you know, every half an hour was something else that you could do to try to stop the, uh, stop the outbreak. So it was a remarkable time. This is a typical picture out in a uh, field site. This is in Bombali, one of the heavily affected districts uh, with the ministry, the uh, Sierra Leonean staff, the WHO staff, and our CDC staff all working together on the surveillance and the response. So from the CDC perspective, our uh, objectives for the response was primarily to interrupt transmission and also to prevent export of cases. And our, our primary strategies, and this is in, in my order, how I think of them, number one was strengthening the management. And as the CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden said, our rate limiting resource was good management, that we had, we had the uh, other resources that we need. It was really managing it that was key. <coughs> And then what I'm going to um, emphasize in this talk is about uh, the need for safe, dignified medical burials, um, that that was a key part of the response. Of course, the isolation and care of cases and the quarantine and contact tracing were also part of it. This was a Sentinel Public Health event. Uh, this, uh, this shows, I hope at least this is showing. Yeah, that's better. Um, so this was a funeral of a well-known pharmacist in, in early September of 2014. Uh, this is written up by Katie Curran, um, an EIS officer, a, uh, a young uh, CDC uh, uh, medical epidemiologist in training in the uh, MMWR. Uh, took a couple of years to get it out. So a lot of work on, the, on this figure. But this figure um, shows this, this event of the funeral and then it, uh, part of the practice was these traditional burials was what people would touch the cadaver. And so there were 28 cases just from that funeral and then a second and third generation of additional cases. And you can see the, the, the X's there show the people who would touch the cadaver and the D showing the people that had died. So this, this is really a, a, a sentinel event going on and really underscore the importance of funerals and these kind of super spreading events for propagating the Ebola outbreak. So I had the team look at the surveillance data that was being gathered, and we saw that it, the, the bars in red are the cases that were reported in the, in the prior month, 
and saw that about a third of the, of the cases had reported attending a funeral, and that among those who had reported contact with a case, the, the great majority of them, about 80%, said it was contact with a dead case, with a cadaver, versus contact with a live case. It really underscored the importance of dead body management and, uh, and, and implementing a, a program for safe, dignified medical burials. We, we thought it was underappreciated, uh, it, its role in transmission, and thought in part that's because many of the responders are physicians and focus on the living and not as much attention to cadavers and what's happening to them just because of our, our bias towards saving lives and, and not uh, dead body management. We developed a, some key policy interventions we involved the uniform services, uh, the Sierra Leone uniform services, both for the logistics uh, that they were able to provide and then for this, the operational security that they were able to provide for this activity. Conducted rapid assessments, uh, developed curricula for, for the, um, the, uh, the ambulance crews, had training of trainers, and also directed substantial U.S. government funding towards the Red Cross that was the, was the key implementing agency for the dead body management. Uh, my colleague, Carrie Nielsen, I knew her from her work on the President's Malaria Initiative with us in Zimbabwe. She was working on infection control, and I said, congratulations, you're now going to be our expert on dead body management and, and lead this new team that we're standing up. And uh, she, she uh, jumped right into it and uh, conducted this uh, rapid assessment, uh, which was really informed our efforts and, and was published um, soon, soon thereafter in, in January of 2015 in MMWR, and underscored there really weren't enough teams, just you know, simple um, management, how many dead bodies are there, how many teams are there, what's their geographic distribution, there wasn't enough. The uh, coordination of the surveillance, uh, we do uh, oral swabs on cadavers and, and testing, and the burial team response were not well coordinated. This is part of the reason to bring in the military with their logistical support. The laboratory uh, testing and, and uh, management wasn't really uh, systematized. The cemetery space and management was, were inadequate. And the, uh, the practices at that time were really not well accepted by, uh, by the communities, the safe burial practices. This is a photograph um, from King Tom Cemetery uh, when we really started uh, ramping up this, this uh, intervention in this area. And at this point, it's just kind of a hodgepodge. There's no um, perimeter fencing. There's no layout of the graves, different teams just doing different things, um, no standards in terms of depth and that sort of thing, no running water available um, for, for hand washing, just uh, not, not what we needed. And this just shows one team um, varied practices. One of these guys is wearing flip-flops, um, carrying the uh, the body bag coming into the uh, coming into the cemetery. So our key policy, and this was actually the first policy that was implemented by the Emergency Operations Center in uh, in Freetown, in Sierra Leone, was uh, was to develop this this standard approach, this standard operating procedure for safe, dignified medical burial. And the, the key was to define uh, that most of the uh, deaths, most of the burials in the country at that time should be safe medical burial by the, by the government. And only in the case of an area where there was low or no transmission, there were still some districts that had no reported Ebola cases and the corpse had an explained death, such as hit by a truck, could there be a community burial. But otherwise, everybody else was going to have to have a... Uh, 
a, a safe medical burial. And if there was an unexplained death, um, then we would do a swab and, uh, and determine if it was Ebola. So this was a key intervention and uh, certainly was not the practice at the time we were putting this together. So this, this approach, this, this um, emphasis on dead body management was borne out in some of the subsequent um, papers that have come out. The International Ebola Response Team in their, in their big descriptive paper um, of all, all the countries, they uh, highlighted that this, this uh, figure here shows that the bubbles are um, district months and the size of the bubble is the number of cases in, in the district in the month. And the x-axis is the um, percentage of cases where there was a funeral exposure and the y-axis is the reproductive rate, the, spread, the uh, rate of spread of, uh, of, of Ebola in the district. And they showed there was a linear relationship. The more exposure to dead bodies there, there was, the, more, the higher proportion of cases that re reported dead body exposure, the higher the reproductive rate, the higher the, uh, the uh, spread of infection in that district, and, and really emphasized that, uh, that the reduced funeral attendance um, as that went on over the course of the epidemic really was, was key in, in reducing the transmission. This other paper uh, by, by Hayashi and Eisenberg underscores just from the title, Changing Burial Practices Explain Temporal Trends in the Outbreak, and showed they modeled the data, the epidemiologic data. This I just pulled out from Sierra Leone. This shows the proportion, the, the, the line is the proportion of cases over time that had a traditional burial and it dropped precipitously during the time we, we were, uh, these interventions were going on to increase the safe medical burial. And uh, that's uh, fitted data from the model. And they concluded that this increased adoption of sanitary burials likely attenuated transmission. The changes occurred too late to prevent the epidemic, uh, the explosive growth of the outbreak during the early phase. So it would have been important to have done earlier. And finally, when it was done, it made a, uh, it made a big difference. Just a couple more pictures. Um, this is out also in Port Loco. A, uh, these nurses providing no-touch care. They, they didn't even have gloves and uh, PPE provided to them out in these peripheral areas, but they were, they were managing cases just uh, through what they called no-touch care. No-touch care. And this is uh, David, a community health officer, who um, also with, with very little in the way of commodities and support and uh, using oral rehydration solution was able to, uh, to save some people out in, uh, in his community. So I think that's, uh, that was the part, part one about Ebola and just wanted to emphasize one particular aspect, um, but more generally what a public health response looked like and also how the lack of having advanced uh, tools, having, um, having field diagnostics, point of care diagnostics, having a treatment like ZMAP and having a vaccine really, uh, really hampered things. Let me, let me turn now to HIV, uh, HIV response and research capacity. As Lisa mentioned, I was the CDC country director in Zimbabwe uh, 2011 to 2015 before com coming over to the, to the NIH. I'll, I'll talk about the cascade of HIV care in Zimbabwe, uh, our Zimphia, our population-based HIV impact assessment to get better data, more granular data about the, the, the epidemic of HIV and the, and the, uh, the response, and then uh, some on building HIV research capacity. So this, and I apologize for these graphics. I could tell you this is anything and you wouldn't know. 
<laughs> this shows, uh, yeah, no, th th so this is the prevalence of HIV in Zimbabwe, in southern Africa. It's, a, uh, it's, a, it's the epicenter of the global epidemic. In the late 90s, the prevalence um, got up as high as 25% of the prevalence of HIV in adults as high as 25%. And now more recently, this goes through 2016, uh, the prevalence is down under 15% uh, of HIV infection. And then this next shows the incidence, the numbers of new infections per year that was as high as, as nearly 200,000 per year in the early 90s when there was really the rapid spread of HIV in Southern Africa. And that has really, uh, very gratifying, has come down um, significantly through to 2016. It's about 40,000 new cases per year. So still a lot, you know, if you compare that to the Ebola uh, outbreak in terms of fatal viral outbreaks, it's still, still a very big one and an ongoing one in, uh, in Southern Africa. So this, this may look familiar to you um, who think about these kinds of uh, public health things and HIV in the U.S. There's a cascade of care that you've got to be tested, you've got to be treated, you've got to be adherent, you've got to um, do everything that, that takes you from uh, being undiagnosed to having a suppressed viral load. And that viral load suppression is very important. People who are taking treatment and doing well have a normal lifespan um, with HIV infection. And then other research has shown that, that people with, with uh, that people on treatment or people with an un, undetectable viral load are virtually uninfectious with their HIV infection. But what this shows is you can think you're doing well. Um, so if you, there's about a million people uh, uh, with HIV in the U.S., and most of them are diagnosed, and most of them are in care, and most of them are on treatment, and most of them have a suppressed viral load. But you multiply all these things together, so you end up with only 20, at this time, only 28% of the total number of people with HIV in the U.S. having a suppressed viral load, having really successful treatment. So uh, this came out as I was uh, wrapping up my domestic HIV work and moving over to Zimbabwe. So we tried to recreate this in the Zimbabwe setting and uh, had to patch together we had from uh, UNAIDS uh, estimates of about 1.2 million people with HIV in Zimbabwe. Also from estimates, the percentage of them at that time that would be eligible for treatment. Uh, now we've moved to treating everybody. But at that time, there was a, a, a CD4 cutoff for treatment. The number of diagnosed people we didn't know, the number linked to care we didn't know. We knew from the Ministry of Health and Child Care how many people had been started on treatment. We had a different study showing us the retention rate and yet another study showing us the percentage that had a viral load suppression. So if you also do this arithmetic, you end up with about, at that point, we estimated about 30% of people living with HIV in Zimbabwe had a suppressed viral load, which is also not great. It was as good as the United States, but also a, uh, a lot needed to be done to improve this. And then also, as I'll get into, we, we really needed better information, better data on this. So some of the things to improve this continuum of care, expanding HIV testing, and as I'll we, knew, we, we knew and, and, and confirmed with the, the study I'll show, that the testing was really the, the, the step where we were missing the most people in, in getting people diagnosed. And so opt-out testing, just testing everybody coming to a medical facility for any cause um, uh, voluntarily, but offering it is, uh, was, was one part of that. The second bullet is just raising, uh, making more people eligible for treatment, getting them on treatment, uh, raising the threshold for eligibility 
It was at 350 to 500. Now, as I said, it's, it's gone to treating everybody, um, treating pregnant women and, uh, and other groups was, was part of expanding treatment. Then implementing interventions to improve linkage. Don't just test somebody and then refer them to a different place for treatment, but actually um, walk them over and register them in, the, uh, in treatment. Um, optimizing ART, there's now a, a, a single dose, one pill once a day. Treatment for HIV infection is the first line for treatment. And, uh, and then lastly, this public health approach of carefully monitoring every step of the cascade and having quality improvement from the facility level to the national level. So every facility should keep track of how many people they've diagnosed, what percent of them are started on treatment, et cetera. This was my, my small team in, uh, in Zimbabwe, uh, but we, um, we worked closely with the Ministry of Health and Child Care and with a lot of other implementation partners in, uh, in the work that we were doing. And it was a, it was a very gratifying time we were starting, uh, the, the country, the Ministry of Health really, was starting about 10,000 people on treatment per month um, on, on life-saving HIV treatment. So uh, that was uh, nice to be doing that with the PEPFAR U.S. government resources. And this is just a, an event. Uh, we, we, the ministry said their, their main issue was not having enough space, that they're literally handing out the, the pills to people in tents or under trees out in these peripheral rural clinics. So we procured um, 160 double-wide trailers and, and ministry helped determine where to put them all over the country. This is a handover event with a big key representing these clinics with the U.S. Ambassador Bruce Wharton, the uh, district, uh, the provincial medical uh, director, Wenceslas uh, Niandoro, and the head of the HIV program, uh, Dr. Owen Mugurungi, had a great handover event for that. So this, um, this study I mentioned that we then put into place because we really didn't have the, the, the best information about how we were doing, the Zymphia, the, this population-based HIV impact assessment survey, this was a collaboration with the Ministry of Health and Child Care. Uh, PEPFAR was the funding, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. The CDC was the, the lead uh, agency that was uh, implementing. And then we worked with, with uh, ICAP, with uh, investigators from Columbia University, were also key partners. The goal of this was really to determine at the population level the burden of HIV and then the impact of the response. Where were we principally in, the, in this cascade of care that I talked about? This is a big study, um, a national study, nationally representative study, um, breaking up the whole country into enumeration areas. We um, selected about 15,000 households and over 28,000 individuals that participated in the study. And this was important to have this big sample size so you could ask in this province, in this age group, in this gender, how were we doing, to have that level of uh, information, to have that, that granularity in, uh, in guiding the response. This is one of the field workers in her Zymphia hat, um, identifying herself and doing the phlebotomy out in, uh, out in the field. And this is the, the kind of information that we get from this, able to look at the provincial level in Zimbabwe, the prevalence of infection, um, still about 15% overall, with, but with a gradient with um, lower um, 11 to 13% in the northern and eastern part of the country, and as high as 22% in the, in the southern and uh, western part of the country bordering Botswana and South Africa. 
This shows then at, at, at this time, a couple, a couple of years ago, as the data were being collected, what the status was in terms of the viral load suppression. And it was actually 60%. That total number is 60% of the people in the study, which was a nationally representative uh, population. The people with HIV, 60% of them had a suppressed viral load. This was better than the 30% that we'd estimated earlier, partly because we were just wrong, because we didn't have very good information, but partly because during that whole time, we'd been starting um, 10,000 people a month on treatment and strengthening the retention and adherence and, uh, and everything else as part of that. Um, you'll also see here a, a significant male-female difference in, uh, in the viral load suppression. And then uh, breaking this out a little bit further, uh, we, we all talk about um, with, with UNAIDS leadership 90-90-90, having this goal by 2020 of getting 90% of all people with HIV diagnosed, 90% of them on treatment, and 90% of them with a su suppressed viral load. So in Zimbabwe, what we found in just looking at these last bars for the, the percentage diagnosed was at 74%, so not 90%. Um, but the others, the, the percentage of those diagnosed on treatment was 86% or almost 87%. And the, of those on treatment, we were at 86% that had a suppressed viral load. So again, it's, it's really that diagnosis, that first step is where we were losing the most ground. And then that's the worst place to be losing ground because then that just gets propagated over the rest of the, uh, of the cascade. And so the team uses this data, to, as, as I said, to look at each, in each province in Zimbabwe. It's testing in every province. We can look. This is that same um, cascade in, in each of the provinces, and, and the circles or rounded squares uh, highlight that it's that, that diagnosis that's lacking in, uh, in each of the provinces. And then can, uh, can, can look then in, in some more detail breaking out the uh, younger age group, age less than 30, and the older age group, uh, 30 and older, by sex, male and female. And it's, and it's really uh, highlights that this, it's the younger age group that we're having more of the challenges, that it's in the, 50, in the 50s uh, percent range, the diagnosis in that younger age group, both in, in men and in women, and better in the, uh, in the older age group. So that's, that's where we needed to, uh, to focus efforts. And then can further with some of the program data uh, look at, and this is also done at the provincial level, these different kinds of testing. What's the yield? Um, what's the positivity in these different kinds of testing strategies? And so comparing um, on the left, the community mobile testing where a van would go out and, and try to recruit people for, for on-the-spot testing, the yield was actually quite low. And that red bar, that, that smallest bar, is in the young men is really quite low. That we're really not finding uh, the, the, the people with HIV infection that we're, that we're trying to um, through that community mobile testing. And in contrast, let me just skip to this index testing. And this is um, like partner notification. And so someone who's diagnosed with HIV saying, please um, bring in your partners, um, your sex partners or family members or even social contacts to get them tested. And this had quite, a, this was in the, up to the 40% range of the prevalence in, in those people being tested. So that was, um, in contrast, quite a high-yield endeavor to, uh, to strengthen this index testing. And now we also uh, are gathering information on costs. And this is looking at the cost per new person with HIV identified. And for those in that community mobile testing, for those young men where the yield is so low, the cost of identifying someone, a, a young man, through that method is over $900 per case. 
and contrast that index testing because the, co the cost is relatively low because it's mostly the people with HIV themselves that are doing the, the recruitment and bringing people in to be tested, and the prevalence is so high, the, the cost per case there is, is less than $100. The cost for identifying a new uh, person living with HIV is quite low. And so we, we would uh, put these things together. Um, th this chart shows uh, the top uh, number is the yield. Um, the, the reddish bar is the number, is the number of positives. The, um, the other colored bar, uh, the gray bar for 2017, is the, uh, is the, is the number of negatives, uh, people without H test HIV negative as, uh, as through these interventions. And this highlights in the annual planning, the country operational plan for 2016 is on the left. The country operational plan for 2017 is on the right. And the changes that, that were made. And so we obviously uh, increased index testing and uh, decreased these, these uh, lower yield methods, um, the standalone uh, treatment centers and the targeted outreach. And then something new here is uh, self-testing, that there's been a number of studies showing that self-testing is actually fairly reliable and feasible for just making uh, the test kits available, the oral tests that people can do to, uh, as a first screening method, that, that that was also increased. So I'm, I'm saying we because I still feel part of this team, but I, I moved on, um, and it's really my colleagues that are still there in Zimbabwe that uh, made that 2017 plan and are, are now implementing it. So let me um, shift again to, uh, to our, the third part of what I want to talk about um, briefly is about what I'm doing now at the National Institutes of Health and working at the Fogarty International Center on supporting the global research for NIH and especially focused on the global research capacity building, the capacity for research in lower income countries. Dr. Francis Collins, um, pictured here, who's the director of NIH since 2009, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. And so people were a bit surprised, um, some of us pleasantly surprised, when asked what his priorities were. He said um, number four of his five priorities was to increase research in diseases affecting the developing world to, uh, to really ramp up global, global uh, health research. And this, um, so I'm an epidemiologist, so I've got, to find, I've got to find the data and see what it shows. And uh, this is the number of the NIH extramural awards uh, grants that have a foreign component. Uh, most of these are, are domestic awards, um, like to Dartmouth, and then Dartmouth works with a foreign partner like in Tanzania. Um, but we can see um, in this part of the, the Francis Collins era that that number increased over 90% um, to now over 7,000 uh, uh, grants per year have a foreign component in them from, from the NIH, making NIH um, already the big, you know, obviously the biggest funder of medical research in the U.S., but also the biggest funder globally for medical research. The, uh, the Fogarty Center, where I work, is one of the 27 institutes and centers at NIH, and we focus on supporting the other institutes and their uh, global health research and their global activities, but then also with our own uh, fairly modest resources, uh, really focus on the training and capacity building for medical research in the lower income countries. I, uh, John Fogarty was a Rhode Island congressman, and I'm a native Rhode Islander, so I, I always heard about Fogarty and didn't know who he was, but now, now I know. Uh, and he was, uh, he was the, uh, the head of the Bricklayers Union uh, before becoming a congressman and a huge proponent of NIH 
uh, generally, but then also um, focused on, on uh, global health um, towards the end of his life. He died um, relatively young, and the Fogarty Center was started in 1968, the year after he died in, uh, in 67. So we're, we're now uh, having our 50-year 50 um, 50 anniversary. Basically, the, the work that we do focuses on, on the people and, and building up the, uh, the capacity of individuals, um, training them, and then making sure they have time to actually conduct research and not completely overwhelmed with clinical or teaching duties and providing strong mentorship both from the U.S. side and from the, the lower and middle income countryside. Uh, and we work with both uh, U.S. young, U.S. investigators and, uh, and, and foreign uh, lower income country investigators to, uh, to do this. So over a, a career progression from undergrad through their career, our training activities include the research uh, training grants, the D43, so that's what, that's what Ford von Rhein has for the HIV training in Tanzania. We also have global health fellows and scholars uh, that uh, we're really diversifying from a focus on infectious diseases to uh, more other areas of medicine and cancer and, and uh, heart disease and neurology. And then uh, we also have the K awards. A, a K01 is a typical NIH training award, but we started in the last few years a K43, so, so uh, early career foreign investigators can get career support for their, uh, for their uh, research training. And then on the research side of things, these work hand-in-hand hand that Fogarty funds more training, the other institutes fund more research. Uh, we, have, we have some research, uh, but we fund more the R21 planning grants, and it's the, uh, the other institutes that fund the R01, uh, the, 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 the larger, longer uh, uh, training award, uh, research awards. So uh, this was... Uh, born out, we really started this work in the 1980s with the beginning of the resources available to respond to HIV AIDS, started the, the AIDS, uh, International AIDS Training Program. And if you do this for 30 years and training thousands of people, you end up with some very strong uh, global health researchers. So th this was at the International AIDS Society meeting in Paris last year. We put together a panel we had uh, there on the left is, is Bill Pop, who's the head of, of the uh, HIV research in Haiti. Um, then next to me, the other side is James Hakim, who's the uh, head, head of the HIV research in Zimbabwe. Uh, let me, well, uh, Kresha Abdul-Karim and her husband Slim are the head of Caprisa, a big research program in South Africa. Also pictured there is Linda Gale Becker, who's the president of the uh, International AIDS Society and also a Fogarty trainee and grantee. All, all these people, after this decades of support, are really the leads of the HIV AIDS response. And so just as one example, one great example, this New England Journal of Medicine publication on the use of treatment as prevention, the HPTN 052 study, that, that proved that treating people with HIV is very effective in preventing transmission of HIV. Uh, Mike Cohen, who is the principal investigator, will attest I've highlighted some of the co-authors that were Fogarty trainees, but in most of the Africa sites, most of the um, site leadership had been Fogarty trainees. And this is after decades of support and training, and it's what it's what it takes to have that that kind of, uh, of capacity to do these kinds of studies. And this is now this is very helpful for the world, but also for the U.S. This is the the basis for the, the part of the basis for treating everyone and the practice and policy in the United States. 
And so I would contrast this with West Africa, where we did not have these kinds of programs and did not have this kind of support. And so then we're fumbling around in the middle of this Ebola outbreak, trying to study ZMAP and, and study the, uh, the, the, the Ebola vaccine. And if you haven't spent the time to put in the capacity, you can't, you can't airdrop in this kind of a research capacity. So we're, so we're now, this has been the last couple of years, we have a, uh, um, that's actually wrong, it's a, it's a D71, it's not a K43. Um, I've become fluent in these, these NIH grant numbers. Uh, so we've now, um, 20 years too late, um, making resources available for research training planning grants in West Africa to try to play catch up to, uh, to, to build the capacity there. So uh, lesson learned, uh, and now looking at the globe of where are the other places where we need to build the research capacity so we're ready both to as uh, altruistically to want to help the world, but also um, to help ourselves, that having a, having knowing what's effective for HIV treatment, uh, having an Ebola vaccine is, is also beneficial for, uh, for Americans. I just want to emphasize, I don't see quite so many young people in the audience, um, but I think I, I do want to uh, just emphasize this, uh, the summer internship program that's at NIH. This is a, a wonderful program for any student from high school through graduate school, anyone who's, a, I think, at least a half-time student, any U.S. citizen who's at least a half-time uh, student can get a, a stipend and support to spend the summer at NIH. And we'll emphasize that the applications uh, close next week. Uh, so it may be late in the game for this year, but for next year, I, I had some undergrads come up to Dartmouth, uh, come up to, uh, come to NIH in December and told them this, and one of them got right on it and is now uh, spending the summer at uh, NIH. So it's, it's a great uh, program available I wanted to, uh, to highlight. So um, just in summary then, um, that the, uh, you know, we talk about um, more two-way vivos docent and the, the dead teach the living, more um, talking about anatomy class, um, but I think also in our public health response uh, that the dead have a lot to teach us. I, I talked about what we call uh, precision public health and really getting the, the granularity of data that you need to be able to have a, a smart um, geographic and, and population-specific response to uh, public health challenges. And then that importance of building the research capacity so we can develop the interventions that we need, the, the, the really effective interventions that helps the world but also help the, uh, the U.S., uh, uh, Dartmouth President Dickey said, the world's problems are your problems. I would turn that around and say, the world's solutions are your solutions. That it's really uh, uh, solving problems for all of us to go out into the world and, uh, and do this kind of research. So let me, uh, let me thank you. I, I want to thank Lisa for inviting me here. Um, thank all of you for your attention. Um, thank some of my mentors and friends that are here. Um, also some great global health leaders, Jim Strickler. Um, Bob Roosevelt, Charlotte Sanborn, and uh, my colleague Elizabeth Talbot that we were with in Botswana. And just, uh, I, I think, say how wonderful Dartmouth has been as a global leader, um, really the vision of, of uh, President Dickey and what's um, continued on to this day and the resources that you have um, with leaders like Ford von Rhein, with the medical school, with the engineering school, with the business school, um, really uh, encourage Dartmouth to continue in this leadership role in, uh, in global health research and response. Thank you.
Good. Yes, please. With the uh, present uh, regiment, I'm sorry, with the, who's running the government now, mm -hmm. is there any chance that your your work is going to be reduced, that the funding is going to be restricted? Uh, well, uh, uh, <laughs> yes and no. So um, some of you may be aware that in the, in the White House budget last year, the Fogarty International Center was slated for elimination. Um, March, March 16th uh, uh, was a, a day that will live in infamy. We woke up and saw that the, the budget said $0 for Fogarty and a 20% reduction in the NIH budget overall. So that's the White House, and that's the White House's vision. But it's as we, as we know, and I didn't learn this in Dartmouth Medical School, but I've learned a lot about these things since then, it's the, it's the Congress that actually makes the budget. And, when, and with a lot of, of friends and supporters and advocacy, um, Tom Cole, the head of the Appropriations Committee, is now uh, deeply versed by Mary Fogarty, John Fogarty's daughter, about the importance of the Fogarty Center, and a lot of other letters and editorials from the New York Times to the New England Journal of Medicine. Our budget's restored, and in the president's budget that just came out last week, um, we're, we're, we're back in, we're there. There's another uh, steep reduction for NIH was in the original budget. There's an addendum that restores that, and Congress wants to actually increase the budget by $2 billion, um, the NIH budget by $2 billion. So uh, yes and no is the answer. <coughs> Related to this, for example, the, the global health security agenda funding, the, the funding that's our work now, the CDC work now to build up the surveillance capacity uh, was uh, five years of funding that comes to an end um, this year. So um, that is not going to be currently not slated to be continued. Um, so that, that's a, a big challenge now. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about in the field coordinating with other organizations, so Red Cross, um, WHO, and many, many organizations and countries that send people. How does that, how does that work? Um, yeah, so for HIV, uh, well, for anything, it's, you know, we put the, the, the government, the national leadership in the lead. Um, it's, their, it's their country. It's their call. Um, in, in HIV, over decades of time, there's this concept of having the, the three ones and having one national plan and one monitoring and evaluation system. And, and especially through the global fund resources, there's the country coordinating mechanism where the partners come together and, and help to put together the global fund funding application um, goes a long way to inform the national plan. So that's been uh, fairly well worked out over time. And then within a, a lot of the resources are, are U.S. government resources, either through the global fund or through PEPFAR. So just getting the U.S. agencies to work together is, uh, is a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the battle, uh, but, it, but it makes it relatively easier. For Ebola, that was part of the challenge, and, and that's why I mentioned how good management was really the key. Most of the countries did not have emergency operation centers. They hadn't worked through roles and responsibilities. Um, and a lot of that, I'll say, uh, I worked quite well with the, uh, with the WHO lead, with the government, uh, and with the USAID counterparts in Sierra Leone, which is part of why it was so rewarding and a lot more challenges in Guinea, which was one of the most frustrating professional experiences that I've had in, uh, in contrast. Um, so it's, it's criti critically important, um, and, uh, and I think now it's part of the lessons learned from Ebola and working out these, uh, these relationships and, and roles and responsibilities. Yeah. 
Lisa. Thank you, Peter. That was a fantastic overview. And I was wondering if you could talk about the role of infrastructure development. Because as you saw with the Ebola response, and as you probably know from building research capacity, many times what we see as rate limiting step is the infrastructure is not there to, in which to <clears throat> take advantage of this newly developed capacity. So I'm wondering if you or Kobe have some thoughts about how to sort of partner the capacity building with the infrastructure. And, and you mean like bricks and mortar, physical infrastructure? Typically, that's, that's our rate limiting step. Yeah. I mean, having the laboratory capacity for researchers to be able Good. to do the yeah. Now. You need it all. Um, actually, so this is a, a thrilling new development is the World Bank is now, um, do you guys know Jim Kim? <laughs> so um, the, the, the World Bank is uh, now with their IDA, um, their International Development Association funds, which is $75 billion, making a, asking us to help them to make the case to ministers of finance that they would include funding for biomedical research capacity as part of their IDA loan. So don't build it, don't spend it all on airports and bridges, but to actually do some capacity building. So this was something I wanted to do anyway, and this is a great opportunity that we're now putting together. The, the Global Health Security Agenda has this joint external evaluation that talks about surveillance and communications and different building blocks of the, of the public health response. We're now putting together um, those kinds of indicators for a research response, and the you know you should have laboratories that are able to do GCLP um, type laboratory testing. Basically, all the building blocks, the um, data informatics, the clinical space, etc. So that's uh, a critical part of it. Um, the tr some of these other things you can airdrop in, uh, but having the the personnel and the training, the regulatory pieces, um, those those are need to be developed over a longer time. Yeah, Elizabeth. Um, thank you for a very coherent talk, um, but mostly thank you for your distinguished career, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have intersected with you in Botswana. It's caused me to reflect a bit on um, the contrast between our experience in Botswana and our parallel experiences in, in West Africa during Ebola. Rather than precision public health, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about maybe your personal public health experience and, and the fact that um, I think part of our collective success in Botswana was, was the, the length and strength of the relationships we had and made in the public health infrastructure there. So those are sadly sort of glory days. You know, I knew everyone, I knew how things worked, I understood the cultural context of health there, et cetera. And then airdropping, as you say, into Botswana, into uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia for these short deployments, the the gradual understanding of the importance of these cultural burial practices when we didn't really have the liberty to be gradual about the emergency, right? So I, I felt that um, in a lot of ways the short deployments that CDC was offering um, and, and many of the response agencies were not as effective as they might have been had they been over, you know, months and years. Sure. Right. So I wonder if CDC is moving toward more um, long-term deployment in, in an emergency model um, and, and just what is the position for... Um, what is your position regarding some of the longer-term deployments for the effective response? Yeah, so um, great question, great observation. Uh, part of what was happening is with these global health security agenda funds putting in country offices. So there's now country, you know, there weren't, and now there are country, CDC country offices in um, Guinea, in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, and a number of other countries. 
those fundings coming, those resources coming to an end. So unfortunately, that's going to be sort of handed over um, to, uh, to, to to the local authorities. There's also now an Africa CDC. So there's there's more of the capacity on the continent in uh, in Addis Ababa, um, with very strong uh, John Nkengasong is leading that, who was the, the HIV lab director at, at CDC, is now there. So, the, so that's part of it. There's also now, the CDC's developed a, a core of people um, that are going to, they still had day jobs, but they're more ready to deploy. And the understanding is they'll be able to deploy for a longer time. Um, but we, we don't really have the, the luxury of having people you know, waiting for the next long-term deployment. It's really taking and you know, borrowing from, uh, from existing programs to get people for as long as they're able to do it. And partly it's they need to go back to their job. And partly it's just stressful and you're away from family and, and everything. So that, that, you know, that four hours of sleep, I could do that for a month. Um, that's not, and I did that actually, that was sort of an emergency in Botswana. I would, I would work in the office all night, a couple nights a week um, during that time. Yeah, not, not anymore. Um, but um, yeah, it would, be, it would be great to have. Um, and longer is better, um, but we have constraints. Yeah. Dr. McClellan. So given that uh, one would hope to identify emerging diseases early rather than later, just interested in how does a global surveillance system work? How does it work, and what is its status at this point to be able yep. to kind of detect the next, whether it be Ebola or SARS or whatever it may be, you know, before it gets out of control? Yeah, uh, great, great question. So there's some that want to actually go out and discover every single virus in the entire world, or every virus in mammals or, um, or birds, which is where a lot of human viruses come from, which is a big project. Um, they also said the, global, the, the Human Genome Project was a big project, um, but uh, some people have that vision. Um, others of us that feel more resource-constrained would say, you know, we can sequence something so quickly, as soon as there's some kind of an outbreak, we can identify it in a day, less than a day, in a few hours of what it is. So it may not be that helpful to know every single virus in the world, since you really don't know which, which is the next one that's, that's going to attack. And then to have um, kind of platform, so for any flavivirus, you would have a sort of model for a vaccine or a model for a diagnostic, and when a new one comes along, that you could use that. So th th there's the WHO International Health Regulations. There's the Global Health um, uh, uh, Global Health um, Security Agenda funding to, to support that and building up this kind of surveillance capacity um, for identifying new syndromes, um, identifying outbreaks. A lot of it is is a lot of the outbreaks or diseases we know about. Influenza is really the by far the biggest um, threat. At, uh, at this point in terms of an outbreak. But it was, it was nice to see in the latest WHO list of, th of threats, with including influenza, um, they have disease X and underscoring that we need, you know, likely the next big thing, we're not going to, it's not on anybody's list. Z they made these lists of likely pathogens five years ago. Nobody had Zika on the list, and then Zika came along. So, you know, preparing that, that sort of... Uh, 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 general response to be able to respond to something new coming along. So the, the surveillance is much better than it was in 2014, um, but but uh, under threat with the, the resources coming to an end from the from the U.S. side. 
maybe here and then Dave and then this way and, and probably that will bring us yeah, I'm. Uh, I can stick around. I think some of us are going to go have coffee if anyone anyone wants to keep talking afterwards. Okay, traditional healing, indigenous medicine, has been the uh, pillar of cross-cultural studies. Fogarty has often been interested over the years in traditional medicine, particularly the pharmacopoeia of it. Uh, but I'm just wondering why that didn't come up more in your work and in this presentation. A billion people still follow Ayurvedic, Chinese and traditional, and more and most Africans go to a Bantu healer before they get to a Western clinical healer. Admittedly, the synthesis, thank God, is beginning to work between Western medicine and traditional healing. But what happened to traditional medicine, the vast majority of people in your presentation here? Where is poverty on traditional medicine? Uh, well, we do we do have some work on identifying natural products, um, some some promising work going on in, in identifying with researchers. Um, some, one of our staff is just back from the Philippines with some uh, snail uh, uh, some snail peptides that seem to be quite effective. And, and actually, part of it is with this focus on the the uh, opioid epidemic and identifying non-opioid um, pain treatment. So we propose to scour the earth and, and look for uh, non-opioid uh, pain relief. And we're racking our brains. So there must be some good examples of, of natural product uh, painkillers, which is opiates <laughs> is one of them, um, but also aspirin, um, artemisinin, the, the first-line treatment for malaria is, is a natural product. So we, we have done some uh, work and continue to do work in that area of identifying nat some natural products. Also, uh, we have a... a initiative, the, the uh, Coalition for African Research and Innovation. And, and part of that is this discovery and, and identifying new treatments, um, which, which could include working with traditional healers to try to identify some products that could actually be brought to licensing and, and, uh, and, and distribution. So th that's been more of the focus of, of, of what we're doing now. Yeah, Dr. Kelmarks, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, well, excellent presentation. I had one brief comment and a question. The comment was, um, were you Brown Dartmouth back in 1990? Is that right, in your introduction? That's, uh, I, well, I was in the, the Dartmouth-Brown program, so I, right. I, I left here so in 88. I'm thinking that Elmer Pfefferkorn would have been really yes. proud of the work that you've done. My question is, um, as you were working on Ebola, why was this outbreak so much worse and much wider spread than the previous ones? Do you think there were social disruption factors that were changing the way it was spread or communicated, whether it be drought or local terrorism altering the movement of people or displacement of people? It probably wasn't burial practices that were different, but maybe there was something else in society that made it so much worse. Partly it was we weren't paying attention. Um, we weren't thinking Ebola in West Africa, although we should have. I, I had too many slides and took one out that shows the fruit bats is distributed all across West Africa. Um, and there, and zero surveys show that, that people have people are walking around with Ebola antibodies. So part of it was just the very slow um, recognition 
Um, if in DRC now they immediately respond and very there was, there was a one case Ebola outbreak in Uganda. Um, they're getting so good at responding. Part of it is also, and I won't go through the, the whole long list, but I think the the um, road infrastructure. It's a combination of that forested region being very remote, a lot of cross-border, you know, un, unregulated travel going on. But then coming out of there, there's this very good road system, um, thanks to the Chinese largely, um, for some of the, the natural resource extraction. So people were then in, in, in the classic Ebola outbreak in the DRC. It's so remote. You say there's a quarantine, but nobody's really moving in and out anyway. Whereas in, in, in that part of West Africa, once you get out of that forested region, there's, there's quite good roads. It's, you know, I've traveled all over the, the countries um, visiting. Every weekend I would go out um, hours away, hundreds of kilometers away, to visit one of these, one of these sites. So I think that, that would be the main combination. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to make some co comments and ask you to make a comment about, the, about global health in the context of medical education especially undergraduate education, immediate postdoctoral education. And I wish Jack Wenberg had been here uh, because uh, he and I used to talk about global health uh, for medical students. And uh, Jack's comment uh, was always uh, to me, uh, well, the problem that I see with global health uh, in medical education is it's uh, mostly travel and no data. I wish he'd been here today. <laughs> but seriously, um, um, and this would be something we might talk about uh, at another time, but Dartmouth Medical School, uh, well, let me put it this way. Medical education is changing uh, very dramatically. And the role of a modest-sized medical school I think is going to change over time. And I think Dartmouth epitomizes this problem. Uh, we have an excellent medical school, but we cannot compete uh, across the board with the large urban uh, schools. So we have to prioritize to some extent. And as you know, one of my priorities uh, was to uh, foster uh, global health as a component of medical education at Dartmouth. Uh, is that realistic? Uh, what am I going to say? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think so, and I, and I think that can be a distinction of Dartmouth. And, and I actually applaud what Lisa's doing is combining the global health and the domestic health equity, that it's you know, a lot of the same issues a lot of the same people that are interested in both, and it, it really makes you a stronger program to, to explicitly have those together. But it's also, it's what the students want. I mean, I go to these talks, and Absolutely. I mean, even when it's not about global health, and say, who's interested in global health? Or the, you know, the medical students, almost all of them have already had some global experiences. If you want to attract the best and the brightest, that's part of, you know, it's, it's, you have a nice cafeteria, you have a nice gym, you have a global health program is, uh, is part of that. But again, the strength of Dartmouth is you've got this world-class medical school, engineering school, and business school, and, the, and this vision to bring them together, you, you know, it is and can continue to be an even and greater center for global, you know, if you're looking for a, a niche, I would, say, I would say that's one of them. Thank you so much for an excellent talk. Thank you.